the citizen's agenda approach is really about flipping that model on its head in which the newsroom, instead of going to the candidates and saying, what do you have to tell to the public? You start with the public and say, what do you want the candidates to be talking about as they compete for your vote? And then the newsroom becomes the conduit of getting that information to candidates and then getting it back to the public. Because most people, let's face it, as the public have no access to these people who are in power and who are running to be in more power. So the newsroom's positionality changes from being a gatekeeper to being a conduit to the public. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is a good one for entrepreneurs who are working to improve our democracy. She is Jen Brandell, co-founder and CEO at Harkin, a company that provides technology training and consulting to help newsrooms and other organizations democratize by engaging their audience and community. She's also the co-founder of Zebras Unite, which works to create capital community and culture that we need for businesses to pursue alternate business models that contrast with the Silicon Valley obsession with building unicorns. Jen has a great story of how she became an entrepreneur and the lessons she's learned there, and a lot of wisdom about how journalism should reform itself at this challenging time. She's an excellent guest. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Jen Brandell with Harkin. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Jen, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Jennifer Brandell. I am kind of an accidental journalist, accidental entrepreneur, and just person who's curious about systems, systems change, and I love to organize and build things. And so my career has kind of just been a series of building the parent of the company or project that I'm on because I have found that every time I go up an altitude layer, there's some other problem that needs to be solved and there's not someone necessarily doing it. I've had a very circuitous 20s in terms of uh, the dabbling that I did, including ghostwriting for exotic dancers, John Hughes, writing psychometric tests, grape picking in Tasmania, um, you know, starting a craft company, all sorts of random things. And then I landed in, in journalism after a stint working for the Baha'i faith of all things. So I've had quite a variety of influences on me and uh, have started a, a number of different companies, organizations, and unofficial kind of cultural, hopefully, movements that have all been talking to each other on some level about participatory processes and making sure people get their ideas and needs heard and met. One of the things I like about your career is 
knowing young people who aren't clear about where they're going or <laughs> who are concerned that their major isn't the one that's in demand. You're an art history major. Yes. <laughs> not necessarily always linked to Wall Street or something like that. And you did spend a lot of time doing freelance work and kind of gaining skills and and not necessarily kind of launching into the career as a lawyer or something right out of college. And yet you've become an entrepreneur with a lot of things to your credit and working on things that matter to the country. I love that. Um, oh, good. Thanks. <laughs> tell me about majoring in art history and that freelance time that you spent and how did that kind of build the foundation for what came after? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, really, there was a moment in fourth grade, I can remember, in which uh, there was a, a person coming in, I think it was a parent, you know, kind of doing a career day talk. And they said something about, you know, raise your hand if you know what you want to be when you grow up. And I definitely did not raise my hand because I had no idea. And for the kids who didn't have any idea, which was just a few of us who I think were bashful or not brave enough to say we knew, they said, you know, it's actually a good thing because probably 80% of the jobs that are going to be available to you when you graduate college, if you go to college or when you're of you know career age, haven't even been invented yet. And I thought, wow, thank God, because <laughs> there was nothing that I could see modeled in my family life or, or others that felt like, oh, this is what I want to be. And my mom was an artist and my dad is a businessman. And it's funny that I kind of ended up becoming both things, like a traveling business person and an artist on a level, even though it's not a visual art, it's more like, I don't know, conceptual, uh, societal practice kind of art, social practice art. And when I went to university, I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison in part because it was more affordable than anywhere else I had applied. And they just had everything. So I felt like I could really do a potpourri and, and test the menu and I ended up with art history just at the end of the day. I had more credits in that than anything going into my senior year and thought, I don't want to spend another year here, so why don't I just finish? And I was immediately interested in art history overall because to me, art is often created when certain conditions have been met in a society. People have their basic needs met. There is some degree of economic prosperity. So there's a market for people to make art and buy it and sell it. So I was curious to see like what the human imagination could make when you had kind of a foundation before you and, and what were the different expressions of it. And I didn't study, you know, kind of typical art. I, I went to uh, Australia. I studied contemporary Aboriginal art, among other things. So I was interested in how people were making art through a lens of both old and new. And I don't know, it was just to me a fascinating subject. And I, I also had studied some fine arts beforehand too. So I was, I was curious about various applications. So maybe that's too much information, but that's <laughs> kind of how I um, started just as a dabbler. And then I, I've always just been a hustler of trying to figure out how do I make something work? How does money come into play? Whether that was selling baseball cards on the corner when I was like seven years old, which hard to believe, but people don't pull over to buy baseball cards. I learned <laughs> from like an eight year old, but I think I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit about me and been lucky enough to, to set up a few things that have allowed me to express that. What about the freelance part? Like I saw that you worked for NPR, that you did freelance video and audio and what else? And how did that play into to creating the, the gen of today? 
my twenties, I kind of had a floor in my mind um, that if I had two thousand dollars in my bank account, then I could pursue anything I wanted to, assuming that was as much I had, you know, to pay rent and to be like ahead on groceries like a month or two. And I know that's a privileged position to even have that much, you know, and not be in major debt or anything. But that was kind of my own personal risk tolerance was I can explore whatever I want as long as I can bring in the money to give me that foundation, knowing that I could always crash on friends' couches if needed to save on rent for a couple months here and there. But my 20s were largely consumed with really following my interests. And that led me to a lot of different things, including, like you said, music videos. I I did a few music videos for this multi-instrumentalist, Andrew Bird, as well as some friends of mine and dabbled in creating a small craft company kind of before the whole renegade craft movement, as well as just loving writing and started a magazine with some friends about artists and their process. I guess I never felt the pressure necessarily to say I am X title in my career or to climb any ladder in part because that early experience of someone saying, hey, we're all making this up as we go and the job you might have doesn't exist yet and you can make it yourself. So that was really freeing to me. And I also had parents, thank God, who are not pushing or pressuring me into being the lawyer or accountant or doctor. My older brother did that. The firstborn, uh, he, he became a lawyer and then dropped out of that. I was allowed to follow my instincts, I guess. And I had their trust. What was Dance Dance Party Party? Oh, Oh, yeah. I also started um, a women's only uh, dance uh, situation, I would say. It's not even a class because part of the deal is there's no instructors. So you can't do anything wrong. So uh, my roommate at the time in Chicago and I both loved to dance, but we were people who liked to go to bed early. We didn't like to wear uncomfortable shoes. At that time, there was smoking still allowed in like bars and, you know, around the city. So we hated to go and get covered in smoke. And we also just didn't want to be objectified by the male gaze. So we weren't going out to dance and go clubbing and kind of have that situation. So we thought to ourselves, what are the things we love about dancing? And what are the things we don't? And can we create a space in which the things we love can can take um, precedence? And so the, the three rules are no boys, no booze, no judgment. And it's a dance happening that has spread to around the world. I forget how many countries, but Chicago was one of the the main early chapters and it's still going. And it's an hour of freeform dancing in which a, a different woman DJs every week. Again, that participatory process and the fact that there aren't rules. You can't move incorrectly and people can wear sports bras and, you know, comfortable shoes. And it's really been a cathartic space that feels like a really special thing. I mean, it feels like something like that gives you the sense that you can change the world and make it a place that works for you. I think you're right. I think I've always been looking at what are the problems I'm experiencing and assuming other people probably have it as well, that I'm not some unicorn and there are other people who have these same needs. And it's always, everything's really taken the same approach. Um, All the projects and companies I've started have started with, hey, here's a problem. I'm going to define it. I'm going to find other people who see it too. And let's do something together to see if we can make a different future. That's kind of been the rinse, wash, repeat of all of the different initiatives, including Dance Dance Party Party. (laughs) I'm not sure if you got rinse, wash, and repeat in the right order, but I'll, I'll count. It. <laughs> That's how I do things, Nathaniel. I'm an innovator. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> My husband, I joke because he always um, mops before he sweeps. And I'm just like, no, wrong order. And here I am saying the wrong order. Um, you can keep that in. <laughs> Thoughtly. What is that? 
Thoughtly crew. Yeah, thoughtly crew. <laughs> thoughtly crew. Oh my goodness, you really went deep in the uh, the resume here. I haven't spoken about any of these things in a long time. Thoughtly crew is basically a group of people who are creatives and who are idea generators who are kind of planted into some of these settings in which corporations and companies want to test a new idea in a focus group. And they want to bring people together who are their target audience to give feedback, whether that's on a beer or a concept or a new insurance plan or whatever. And they want to have folks in the room to kind of um, keep up good energy and, and generate ideas for people to bounce off of in case folks aren't forthcoming or aren't particularly generative. So that was a really fun way that I paid a lot of my bills in my 20s is kind of being this creative plant in these focus groups, which was fascinating just seeing how companies were, were testing things out. And I get paid, I don't know, 800 bucks for a day's worth of work, which in that time and period was like, whew, I won the lottery. <laughs> so that was a, a nice little freelance gig on the side. What's the founding story for Harkin, your company? Oh, man. This really goes to the Baha'i faith, actually. So quick backstory. When I was 11 years old, thereabouts, I went to a Northwestern football game. I, I was born in Chicago, raised in the suburbs of Chicago, and my dad took me to a football game. I think it was a crappy weather day, so my brothers didn't want to go, and I got to go instead. And he drove me by this structure in the north suburbs of Chicago in a town called Wilmette of this unbelievable masterpiece of architecture that had filigrees and was concrete like constructed looked nothing like the Midwest kind of strip malls and 90 degree angles. It was an absolute marvel to me. And I said, Hey, can we stop inside? What is this place? It is magical. We ended up going inside. I got a book from the bookstore and read it. And it talked about the Baha'i faith, which I'd never heard of before. And in the Baha'i faith, their prophet is named Baha'u'llah. And the whole idea of the Baha'i faith is progressive revelation. So that every major religions prophet, whether that's Zoroaster, Muhammad, Jesus, you name it, Buddha, they're all actually manifestations of the same God who come to earth, uh, you know, come into civilization at a specific time with a specific message, but that there are universal truths that all of them share. So there was this moment in which I realized having a Jewish mother and a Catholic father that I didn't have to suddenly side with one of them to say which one of them was right because that would imply the other one was wrong. This suddenly kind of went up one altitude level and I could see there wasn't a false dichotomy there. Maybe everyone actually has the same concepts at, at the core and there's just different flavors of it or different window dressing. So I ended up working for the Baha'i faith in 2009 or 2010. And this was after I had reported a story on their democratic processes, which are in stark contrast to the way that the US government does democracy. So in contrast to the approaches that we know when we think about elections and voting and having leaders, their process is character-based. So it's not based on electioneering or campaigning. It's actually illegal to campaign or electioneer. It's like not part of what you do. You actually sit down, write the names down of nine people in the community who show great character, great diversity of thought and experience. You're thinking age, background, uh, skill sets, jobs, etc. You're thinking all sorts of different things about who would make the most diverse set of people to make decisions on behalf of the community. And I thought that was so fascinating. I ended up reporting a story on it for WBEZ Chicago Public Radio during the 2008 elections. And they came to me and said, hey, we need someone who doesn't come from our faith, who doesn't speak the jargon to kind of translate what we do for the public. 
And so I was hired as the token non-Baha'i to create media for them. And I got to travel all over the country for a few years, learning from Baha'i communities about how they do what they do. So now we're getting closer to Harkin. <laughs> so I, when I was working for the Baha'i faith, one of the major concepts that underlies the religion and the way that it spreads is they don't proselytize. It's not about trying to save people's souls or, you know, they're not, they don't get points for kind of converting people, so to speak. It's really about being of service. And the way that they work is that when Baha'is are in any community, wherever they may be around the world, their main question is, how can I be helpful? So instead of saying, like some religions will do, or some even organizations or NGOs will do, they'll go into a space and say, I know how to fix your problem. Let us show you how and teach you, and then you can do it, and then we'll leave. Instead, the Baha'i faith takes this approach that you know your problems best. You're the expert in you. I got two hands. What can I do to help you? And that was such a revolutionary concept to me. And when I thought about journalism and the ways that I had done reporting before, it was the exact opposite. It was, here's what we think you need to know, public. We know what's best for you. We are your parents, in a sense. Like, we need to, quote unquote, feed you your vegetables and the important information. You can't be trusted to tell us what we should report on because you don't know. It just started making me think, what would happen if we flipped the editorial process in a newsroom and ask people, what do you not know that we can find out for you? And we're trusting the fact that people are Googling for things all day long. They have questions that they can't find good answers to, whether it's as tactical as where do I get my flu shot or as big picture and contextual as how did our political districts get to be so gerrymandered over time? What's that background? Like it can be anything that the public is looking for to help them understand how to act in a democracy and make decisions on behalf of themselves and their families. And so in 2011, there was an opportunity from the Association of Independence and Radio, this trade organization, to pitch ideas to public media stations to shake things up and do things differently. And I, I really just thought about what have I learned from the Baha'i faith in these past few years and how can I apply it to journalism? And I came up with this concept, I called it Curious City. It's a play on the word curiosity. And it's all about questions because questions to me are really depolarizing and really inviting and really expansive and all journalism is, is really based on a question, whether it's what's the weather today, who won the sports game, or what's going to happen in the next election. So we got the project greenlit, and I started that at WBEZ, really just flipping the editorial model on its head and building some technology to help support it. And uh, you know, the rest is quote-unquote history in that it worked very well, so well that other newsrooms were like, how do you do this? These stories are performing really well. They're original they're interesting, they're human-centered, they're more representative. How do we do it? And I quit WBEZ in 2015 to really try and help more newsrooms do this process. And Curious City continues to this day. It's been the most popular local series they've ever done at WBEZ, a public radio station. And now we've worked with, gosh, 250 newsrooms around the world to start to do this more participatory process. You said accidental before, but you seem like a bit of an unlikely tech entrepreneur. How did you get things going uh, with that er early tech? Did you learn to do it yourself? Did you hire? How did you get funding? What's more of the story? Yeah, I am definitely not a coder. I am a translator of ideas to problems that we're trying to solve and then to people who are skilled in these things and know what they're doing. So in with Curiosity, we used some of the funding that we got to hire a team, a brilliant technologist to help us build a platform and a, and a workflow to get the questions in and let the public vote on each other's ideas and ultimately create this participatory model. Since most newsrooms' websites are really just there as static 
you know, ways for people to consume information. This was more about a way of creating doorways to the editorial process and interaction, which, which the sites really weren't meant to do. So we have always hired outside help. With Hark and I had a CTO, um, and we've been working with a variety of great engineers and developers for years on really taking this concept and translating it into tech. So I do not know how to code. I know enough lingo about structures and databases to be dangerous, but I will never probably learn how to code and do that myself. Tell me a little about the kind of the course that the company took from, you know, getting early clients and I assume iterating with the technology and making it better. Trace the path of the company a little bit. Yeah. So it was really in 2014 when I was still at WBEZ that I had enough newsrooms saying, hey, we want to do this, that I had a signal that there might be a market for it. There might be money associated. And really more than anything, I just knew I'd regret not trying you know, even if it didn't work, I wanted to see if I could help more newsrooms do this approach because the foundations of it are universal. Like curiosity is an infinite renewable resource. So there's no audience or community anywhere that isn't going to have questions that reporters can answer. And I also knew that newsrooms needed original ideas and reporters didn't always have them. Newsrooms needed to become more representative. And that I felt that the coverage was just better and the mission of journalism was better met when people were involved in the decision making. So I felt like the the core part of it was really applicable everywhere. The question became is there a business model? How do we make it happen? Does it have to be venture funded or not? Cuz that I'll, we can get into later, but I don't believe in the venture capital funded model for 99% of businesses, <laughs> mine included. And can we make a series of offerings that are attractive enough to help people actually become successful with this approach? And so in 2015, I got into an accelerator program in San Francisco that is no longer, but it was called Matter. It was really about changing media for good. And so I got into that program, hired a CTO and a lead engineer to start taking the technology we had built at WBEZ and really making it um, accessible in a white label platform that anyone could use and adopt. And what's been interesting is that becoming part of that accelerator program required us to be a Delaware C-Corp, which is the classic business model that tech companies become because Delaware is very favorable to technology companies and to venture capital approaches. And it's just like the known flavor that that most people use. And becoming a Delaware C-Corp meant that we needed to raise investment. We weren't a candidate for uh, philanthropy, even though we were very mission-based and really kind of set us on this kind of Silicon Valley mid-2015 to to 20 trajectory of, you know, the goal is you try and raise a ton of money and grow as fast as you can and get as much adoption and then sell the company. And none of those things were attractive to me because I love this problem. I want to stay engaged in it. I don't believe growth at all costs and maximizing shareholder value is the ultimate achievement of, of this model. I think it actually gets in the way. And so I just kind of got stuck in this bind. We can talk more about that later. And more or less created a company that was successful enough and has been successful enough. We're alive and well today to have up to at our height before the pandemic, like a couple dozen people on staff in office in Europe that is working to resell our tech and our approach in Scandinavia mostly and selling to customers around the country, not only the technology, but also just the kind of cultural mindset shift and the training that has to go along with it. And when we first started, I thought, oh, we'll just be a tech company and it's just going to be a widget you put on the website 
and people will figure out, you know, how it works. But what I was not prepared for and have increasingly become more focused on is the mindset shift and then the workflow shift and operationalizing that mindset shift. That is absolutely necessary. The tech doesn't matter if people aren't on board and don't agree with the fact that the public is worth listening to. Can you give me an example of a newsroom that adopted this and what happened with their mindset shift and an example of something that they maybe reported on that they wouldn't have without the input of the public, if I understand how things work. Yeah, for sure. So um, one of our first uh, clients was in the Bay Area, in part because I was part of this accelerator program here, and we worked with uh, KQED, which is a big public media station here in San Francisco. I'm in San Francisco at the moment. And we took it to them. I had a former editor at WBEZ, Julia McAvoy, who is there. And I said, hey, can we get a meeting? I'd love to share more about what we're up to in this tech and see if you all want to do it. And so this reporter, Olivia, who is a web reporter at first, really liked the idea and thought, oh, I could, I could use this approach to create more web stories. And so they developed a series they call Bay Curious which is a play on by curious because the Bay is very open in that respect. And they started to collect the public's questions. And this series has been going, I think, since 2015 now. Really incredibly popular series. It's inspired a book that's coming out soon, uh, tours, trivia nights, ads on the BART system, like the public transit here, newsletters, and all sorts of things. So it has actually become its own unit and its own team in the newsroom out of just the popularity of the stories. But a quick example of a story that can happen here. I remember when this guy, Eric, had a question. He lived in the Mission District in San Francisco, which is primarily or had been for a long time, a Latino neighborhood. And every Sunday, he would see cars double parked on the street. And he thought, why aren't these cars being ticketed and towed? Because this is illegal to double park. And he asked Bay Curious, you know, what's the deal? Every Sunday, the police turn a blind eye that, you know, there's all these cars. And it turns out, because of gentrification, people who were going to churches that were in the area had to move farther away and couldn't get to their churches on Sunday unless they drove in. And so there was basically a deal that they could double park so that they could go to their houses of worship on Sundays. And what this ended up doing was creating this huge conversation about gentrification and what does this mean and what happens when you push people out. And the story performed 11 times better than average Time on page was far higher than their typical average. I think it was five minutes and something where the average was one. And it inspired a ton more people to ask questions as well and keep the series going, as well as integrated the guy who asked the question, Eric, into the storytelling itself. So people suddenly were coming at an issue about gentrification through the lens of someone who had a really interesting question that kind of became a mystery and then grew into a story about an issue, but not from a typical approach where newsroom will say, gentrification, here's what's happening. And a lot of folks will be like, oi, I don't want to read that. <laughs> like that sounds, that sounds like work. That's hard. But if you say, hey, why is this weird thing happening? You can get to the issue through a human-centered lens. And the storytelling is just that much more powerful and connected to the real world versus kind of in the policy realm and abstracted. That's a lovely example. You had alluded to difficulty navigating the Delaware C-Corp status. <laughs> what did you mean and what, what did you do over time to deal with that? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember when I got into this accelerator program, I asked the founder of it, you know, your model is based on, you know, trying to fund a bunch of different companies in the hopes that one of them hits a home run and then you get your money back and then some. And I said, is someone who hits a double, is that considered a success for you? You know, something that's sustainable, it advances something forward, but it doesn't have to be a, you know, grand slam success. And that was the question that, that I think almost got me not accepted into the program because I was not talking the big, you know, macho posture talk of like, we're going to change the world and we're going to make you a bajillion dollars. I was just like, I don't think I'm signing up for, you know, giving my blood, sweat and tears to trying to make, I mean, let's face it, mostly white men richer with a company that I'm building and selling it to someone else to take it over. And so that was a tension that I faced in the whole program because it was designed to get everyone ready for this demo day in which they share their tech and then they try and get investors to you know froth over it and come on board and raise millions of dollars to grow the thing. And so overall, just, just values-wise, I never felt like my purpose was exponential growth and a monopoly and an exit. And I didn't think about that approach, that worldview of zero sum of winners and losers and competition. I was really more about how do I create something that has sustainable prosperity, that's profitable, that allows for a plurality of solutions, that is about cooperating versus competing. What we're after really is enough and better, not just always more and more and more. I ran into an entrepreneur friend of mine who I'd met through a mutual friend a few years back. And she was basically a year ahead of me in every aspect. She had started her company, which was a tech company, also an unlikely entrepreneur who was like a Russian major at Reed and, you know, calligrapher who started a tech company and also a public media reporter. So we we both just started talking about just how awful and perverse the incentives were in Silicon Valley, especially in terms of trying to find entrepreneurs to just make rich people much, much richer. And so we we co-authored a post called Sex and Startups that kind of blew up. And the opening sentence was, you know, startups like the male anatomy are designed for liquidity events. And we argued that, you know, a company has about as much chance of making it big as a sperm does in reaching an egg. Like, so we, we really kind of played up the gendered aspect of what kind of was the culture out here and thought, why can't we invest in startups that are a little bit more feminized, I guess, in a way, not to say it have to be started by women, but that they have a different value set and that they have a different energy behind them and a different outcome. So maybe I'll pause there for a moment because there's a lot more to say about this, but it gave birth to what is now called Zebras Unite and a whole different kind of community and, and culture for the new economy. And indeed, that was the next thing I was going to ask you about, because what does it mean to you, Zebra, and why are they need to unite? Yes. So unicorn companies, as your listeners might know, are valued at a billion dollars or more. And they're unicorns because in part they're mythical, you know, and they're very rare. Um, and I would argue they don't actually exist. <laughs> even, even Uber and some of these other things, like they're not making money. They have made people money, but they aren't profitable businesses in a, any sort of sane approach to how business can work. So we, we created zebras as kind of a tongue-in-cheek name for the other kind of animal we want to create. And there's got, there's a whole just lexicon of animal-related companies, the camels and the whatevers. But, you know, we created the zebra because in part, zebras are both black and white. So they can be for profit and for purpose at the same time. They can be two things that seem to be in opposition. They get their advantage from collaboration. 
So a group of zebras together is called a dazzle. And a dazzle will evade the predators. Their stripes are kind of what helps them survive. So they're all about cooperation over competition. And they're also really interesting hybrid animals that can survive in all sorts of environments. And, you know, unlike unicorns, they're real, you know, they exist in the world. And so after we wrote the Sex and Startups post, my friend Mata, I don't know if I'd mentioned her name yet, Mata Zepeda, who is brilliant. Um, we took about a year to figure out, okay, we, we shared what we were dissatisfied about, but we didn't exactly share a vision out of how the world could be different. We just poked a lot of fun at how it's terrible. We thought if we're really responsible here, let's start to craft how things could look differently. So we wrote another post called Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break and really trying to put this different value set in opposition to what really I think has been destroying a lot of democracy, business, and just society for many years is the business models behind big tech. And so that post also went viral and encouraged a couple of other co-founders to come along with us, Ania Williams and Astrid Schultz. And all of us started to create this kind of, um, I don't know, center of gravity for other entrepreneurs, allies, investors who want to create a different way of success in a different way moving forward. And so after many years, starting in like 2016 to now, we have created a multi-stakeholder cooperative alongside a nonprofit organization and a fund and all of the things tied together to become regenerative and to create value within the system of people who are working on it. And that was because of genius risk-taking lawyers who were willing to try and futz with um, corporate forums to try and make this happen and some amazing changes that had happened in Colorado around co-op law. So we have now a community of thousands of entrepreneurs around the world, dozens of chapters of Zebras Unite around the world, including a really big one in Japan that's doing great. So we joke that we're big in Japan. We're looking at some point soon to raise a fund as well to help support these kinds of companies. So who would be helped by Zebras Unite? Give me an example of like if an entrepreneur or someone trying to build a company in this different model, how would they be helped and what kind of things could they get out of it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first, the first order of business is always to help people feel that they are not alone and they are not crazy. So I feel like with all of these endeavors we've done, um, we've kind of just wanted to see who raises their hand and say, does anyone else feel this way or see this being a problem and letting people know that they're not alone. And so one thing is, is creating that community, that sense of people being able to talk to one another about similar problems that they're facing um, in different ways that they've come to solutions to try and help one another out. So number one is community, is creating the folks who can come together, who vibe with this message and can just start talking. And that starts to create a culture. And that creates a culture of, uh, you know, how do we do things differently? Uh, we have done some pretty radical work at Zebras Unite uh, using sociocracy as our governing model. So we have circles that connect with one another that do all sorts of different things for the co-op, whether that's membership or partnerships or operations or products. There's also a circle called Classical to Jazz, which is about translating the classical language of investment into the jazzier future of kind of a different ways of looking at things. And then from that culture, our next step is to create the capital and the structures to create different kinds of companies. Now, we've dreamt before about a Z Corp 
being a new corporate entity that has different approaches that could, you know, include character-based lending to, to fund these sorts of things or loan loss reserves or enhanced credit facilities or other things for entrepreneurs. But, you know, that's going to take some time to format. So right now, we're actually working with a lot of funders who say, hey, we know the current model is broken. We don't know what to do next. How can you help us experiment and start to test new approaches out so that we can deploy our dollars differently? So we're now in the process of educating funders about co-op models, about transparency, cooperation. Not that we're experts, but we're just game to try and we love to experiment. So that's kind of the next stage is uh, the capital structures aspect of it. You know, Having started a company myself or more than one and being in various entrepreneur groups that were not zebra related, but were more traditional, um, I, I have some admiration for you kind of having the courage of your convictions to go another way. In a number of regards, you've been doing that in the story that you've been telling. Where do you think the kind of fortitude comes from to do that? When a lot of the pressures, like from the accelerator, like from other entrepreneurs that are aiming for unicorns, just like just the well-traveled path, you often get pushed into that. Why do you think you're able to go a different road or what's going on there internally? Wow. That's a great question. I don't know that I have a thought out answer um, on that front. I mean, I do feel like there is there's something that feels when you hit upon something that feels like a truth, like a capital T truth about how the universe works, how people work, how rational logic works and patterns work. It's hard to go into a system that doesn't hit that logic willingly for me. I need to know that what I'm doing is in some sort of universal alignment with how things even outside of humanity work and nature and processes and to have things feel like they're in coherence. And I think there's some kind of signal I feel very strongly when I'm in an environment or, or stuck within a system that feels like it's out of coherence with the design of how people work their best. And so it's hard for me to just abide that. And I, I feel just so encouraged by the fact that this pattern of voicing dissatisfaction, seeing who else feels it too, and actually co-creating with people is so utterly joyful and fun and expansive and like world creating that to me, it's also just such a great ride. Like it's, it's so much more thrilling than, than going against a system that has been proven time and time again to not work, to go out and create something new. I mean, it seems a little bit like like the dance, dance thing. Yeah. Dance, dance, party, party. But I mean, because you are by creating other zebras, you're creating a community of people who want to dance in business like you. Yeah, exactly. Or at least want to dance differently than what the traditional dance moves are. And they're going to invent new moves. Yeah. Yeah, They're going to invent moves that I'm going to be inspired by. And I want to, you know, learn from and dance. I saw that you stepped down as CEO and took a different role at Harkin. Can you tell me about what was going on there and what what's that about? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, one of the amazing things about being an entrepreneur that I'm sure you know yourself and a lot of your listeners who are entrepreneurs know is um, you get the chance to try everything out, <laughs> especially when you're an entrepreneur of one or two, you got to do it all. And so you very quickly, hopefully quickly, learn what you're good at 
what you're not good at, what you like doing, what you don't like doing, and where it's worth your time investing and getting better at things. And what I learned over the first few years of Harkin is that my, I don't know, my archetype, my mentality where I get energy is from the zero to one stage. I love building. I love going from concept to reality and getting something working. I'm not great at maintenance. I'm not great at optimization. I don't love managing people. I love mentoring people, but I don't love managing them. And I'm not someone who's the operations kind of mind, uh, you know, fiddling with the spreadsheets in a way to, to make it all work. I'm, I'm game for that thinking. I'm just not, that's not where my talents are. So just like with coding, you know, I knew I needed to build technology, but I'm not a technologist. I finally found someone who was an amazing operator and an amazing manager and just like A plus at that. And when I found her, I said, will you do this job instead? So I can do strategic partnerships and kind of build and do do that kind of work. Now, this was a few years ago. It coincided with a merger with Mata Zapata's company who co-founded Zebras Unite with me, her company Switchboard. And so it was this amazing shift of like three women coming together, two of which were builders, one of which was an amazing operator and us saying, Hey, operator, you operate now. (laughs) And it worked really, really well for a while. And then something called COVID-19 came into play alongside horrific wildfires in uh, Oregon, where the CEO at the time, Chelsea Herring, was living with three kids trying to get through COVID um, and not being able to go outside for months at a time while navigating a merger and navigating the unrest that came along with 2020. And essentially, understandably, she burnt out. And so I'm now back in that position of leader, but I had a couple blessed years where I was able to step away from kind of the day-to-day management and create. And in that time, I I spun up this initiative called Election SOS, which was a $2.3 million grant-funded initiative in 2020 to help journalists get critical information needs for the elections and how how to do things differently for this changing context, which Election SOS is still going on today. But because I had this person running things in terms of the team and, you know, having employees in 10 different states and all sorts of stuff, I could focus on the building. I saw that there were a number of SOSs to your name. What are they all and what is behind that? What are you worried about? Yeah, well, there's so many emergencies that there is no shortage of SOSs. I still am thinking about a climate SOS initiative that we haven't started yet, but would like to in the in the same vein as these. We started with election SOS in 2020 because we just knew journalists were dissatisfied and so was the public with their coverage and approaches to elections, but they didn't have a place to see different models of doing it and learn how to do it and get the information they needed for this very weird and consequential time. So we spun up this initiative that included not only, you know, resources like webinars, videos, training, but also a fellowship program and rapid response grants and a newsletter. So we were just there to try and plug a bunch of different holes that we were seeing. After election SOS, we we pulled a lot of the people who participate in it to say, hey, what was useful about this and what else do you need? And what we heard over and over from the reporters is we want to do things differently. We need more time, more handholding, more attention given to build different skills and new skills to report in a different way. And that can't happen just in a short term, like sprint up into an election. So we started Democracy SOS. You know, thinking about elections as kind of like the wedding night and democracy as the rest of the relationship, how do we create some long-term programming and opportunities for newsrooms and reporters, editors, producers, et cetera, 
to learn new skills that are needed in this day and age, whether that's how to write solutions journalism stories that interrogate solutions as, as well as problems and help people focus on what could work or what's starting to work, as well as trusting news approaches for how do you be more transparent in your reporting, to engaged elections approaches like we teach where you involve the public in the process of reporting, and as well as high conflict or quote unquote good conflict reporting in which you're doing things that don't make things seem unnuanced and uncomplicated and that there's only two sides and reinforce a binary and create stereotypes. How do you start to undo some of those tendencies in the news to create things that are more useful and less harmful, more or less? So that's Democracy SOS. It's, it's a companion to Election SOS, but it's more about long-term culture, mindset shift, and operationalizing that. One of the things that has occupied my mind, I'm not a journalist, but I have an interest in the news, particularly right now in a time of various emergencies, democratic emergencies, and kind of journalism emergencies, I think. One of the things that I've had some conversation with reporters and others about is how do you change your reporting when there are bad actors out there. Like to me, the bad actors, a lot of them are Trumpists, the way that they are shutting out reporters from their events or lying or doing the fake news thing, actually bullying the media, a lot of bad things. I asked this question of Michael Isakoff, who's a investigative reporter. Uh, and he, he basically said, I'm going to continue to report the way a good journalist does tell bad things about one side, tell bad things about the other, whatever I uncover, I'm going to report on, and I'm not making any changes. I think that the times call for something different. What, what do you think? I agree with you. And no disrespect to the folks who are doing the really important accountability journalism and the hard work of, of holding truth to power and all that stuff. I still think that's needed. But I do think there are many more approaches that are more successful and I think possible to make change quicker for this day and age. So I think a lot about what is within a newsroom and a journalist's control. There's a lot that is not. So for instance, the proliferation of misinformation online is not within a newsroom's control. Like you can't just suddenly turn the spigot off of the platforms and the people who are incentivized to put this stuff out there and make it go away. So there's all the reactive stuff that newsrooms could and should be doing trying to, to hit the whack-a-mole of, of misinformation as it comes up. But you could consume an entire newsroom staff with just reactive work. And then your agenda becomes what the nefarious actors or the people who are working in bad faith. And it may even worsen it just by citing exactly. it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So there, there are great best practices that have been developed by folks like the Brennan Center and First Draft and others who have really kind of given the gold standard as to what to do with that misinformation, like never repeat a myth in a headline, start with the truth sandwich where you start with the truth, you talk about the thing that is false, and then you end with the truth. Although that can also have people hear that thing that's wrong again and kind of have it lodged in your brain. So that's tough. You want to warn your audience before quoting the lie, explain why someone might be lying, don't link to false posts, websites, etc. That's the kind of stuff that newsrooms can do when misinformation is trending or becoming problematic. But I would much rather have newsrooms spend their time on the proactive stuff, which unfortunately is longer term change. It isn't sexy. And business model-wise, going back to the zebras thing, so many newsrooms are still incentivized to be optimized for efficiency, speed, and distribution. 
which in an information age is not actually the right thing to be optimized for because they're really just focused on feeding the beast rather than creating public understanding. Newsrooms are optimized for creating content to fit into certain holes, whether that's a time hole or the actual size of a page on A1. That mentality is, is hurting in this context. So on the proactive side of things, what I think needs to happen is that newsrooms need to shift what they're optimizing for. And they need to optimize for relevance, listening, and trust. So if you are not listening to the public, it's really hard for you to be relevant. And we saw that in 2016 and well before when the press really missed it because they weren't listening to the public. There wasn't this way of getting feedback from people like we do with Harkin and with these election SOS and democracy SOS teaching these engaged models of elections. So you need to listen to the public to understand what information they're missing and what they need. And then you need to actually deliver and be consistent about that. But then you also need to like serve the electorate rather than the candidates. I've been working for a long time with this amazing media critic and great mind, Jay Rosen, who's at NYU, um, is this thing called the citizen's agenda. And citizen here is not meant to say that you're documented, but just, you know, you're a voter and you have a stake in the elections, et cetera. And the citizen's agenda approach is really about flipping that model on its head in which the newsroom, instead of going to the candidates and saying, what do you have to tell to the public? You start with the public and say, what do you want the candidates to be talking about as they compete for your vote? And then the newsroom becomes the conduit of getting that information to candidates and then getting it back to the public. Because most people, let's face it, as the public have no access to these people who are in power and who are running to be in more power. So the newsroom's positionality changes from being a gatekeeper to being a conduit to the public. It seems to me like there's an awful lot of judgment left on the table to choose which of the public's concerns you're going to address, because they're going to be horribly misinformed or just bad questions that are coming up. And there's going to be ones that are meaningful and important and might change minds or influence people in a good way. So it seems to me like it's only a modest change from an enlightened newsroom in a certain sense. Actually, it can be pretty dramatic. So the the key to addressing the concerns that you have is that you need to go for volume and breadth. So you need to make sure you're not just listening to a handful of people. You need to go out there and actually listen to as many groups as possible and start to hear the patterns that are coming up. And what we've heard from a lot of newsrooms who have done this approach, or actually every newsroom that's done this approach, is that the public will have different concerns than the newsroom would have imagined. And the politicians won't necessarily be talking about those concerns. So whether that's about mental health support in the town that they're in or what to do about prison reform or, you know, water safety, et cetera, a politician or a newsroom might be thinking about very different things that are already in in the conversation that they haven't been putting to politicians before. So we found every time that the, the newsroom becomes surprised and delighted, essentially, that they're getting different talk, like topics to bring to politicians that they don't have pre-made talking points for and can get them to talk about what they will do if elected in that way. It feels like both of us agree that our democracy's at risk at the moment and that news and how it's consumed and how it's generated is somehow part of that problem, maybe more than part of the solution. What sort of systemic changes do you think might 
put us on a better path? What research have you seen lately about what's working better? What things have you seen are being tried? What direction should we be going? It's a great question. I mean, I'm, I'm biased in that I've spent so much of my time in the engagement space seeing newsrooms do lots of different experiments, whether that's in-person events, whether that's dialogue journalism, whether that's putting into the public's hands some of the tools of creating journalism themselves, like the Documenters Program in Chicago from City Bureau, in which regular everyday people are attending the city council meetings that newsrooms don't have enough staff to attend anymore and reporting back on what was discussed and really deploying the public as an arm of the newsroom. There's so many incredible experiments happening right now that actually help democratize media. And in my mind, a, a democracy cannot be strong or, or have any degree of sustainability if it's only practiced here and there. If people's only experience with being part of a, a process in which they're represented and heard and counted is once a year, once every few years in a, in a poll or at an election, but in every other place in their lives, their workplace, their community, they're not part of a democracy. Like they might not live in a building and be part of a condo board because they're not an owner or they're not part of a co-op where they get to decide on their working conditions or some other things. So to me, I think in order to strengthen democracy and actually achieve the, the promise of democracy, because I don't think we've, we've come close to seeing it yet, is that institutions themselves need to democratize. They need to be better at listening to whoever they're trying to serve, having their opinions registered and have actual weight in the decisions that are being made or the products or services that are being created by those institutions and to give people a chance to understand the difficulty, the complexity, the joys, the pain, the heartache, and the wins that can happen when people work collectively. And so to me, the work of Harkin, of Zebras Unite, of all of these different things is to give people a chance to build that muscle of participation, of mattering, of being part of something, of being engaged. And that is long-term systemic work. It's generational work. It's, you know, really um, a shift little by little from institution to institution. And so on the journalism front, you know, I think Harkin has been successful in the last few years, not of making every newsroom do engagement or anything, but of really trying to get that to the top of their agenda as something that's a non-negotiable. When we first started in 2015, we would talk about audience engagement and they'd say, oh, that's cute. You know, we'll have an intern respond to tweets. And now they realize, especially with the revenue models of needing more reader revenue and subscriber revenue and not just relying on ads, that they need to actually listen and engage with the people they're serving. So I think we're seeing that change, but it's going to take time. When I talk to people in the progressive ecosystem, which is kind of what I cover, and I ask them about gaps in the team that that they have on the left, they talk about um, not having an answer to Fox News and Breitbart and, and the right-wing echo chamber, and they want to build the other hemisphere of the news and have that their message conveyed at equal uh, volume. It doesn't sound like you might think that's the right solution, but how would you talk to someone who that's the path that they're on right now, trying to even things out? I, I can really appreciate that inclination to say, we need to build something as strong to, to fight against these forces. And to that, I would say it's almost like using the tools of your enemy to do something that you hopefully fundamentally agree is, is not working or is toxic or is, is not helpful on some level. 
Because what Fox News and what a lot of these very, very far right wing and extreme news organizations are doing is playing on the worst of human behavior and playing on the worst of different aspects of, of how we are socialized and how we work together. They're playing on fear. They're playing on tribalism, factionalism. And you'd have to do that on the same level on the other side, which I think will only further polarize us. They always say they want to do it more truthfully and more honorably. You don't think that's possible? I, I just think that we've seen time and time again that human beings are not rational actors, that emotion more than anything drives us. And I want to build a world and incentives and structures and technologies and business models that deploy the best of our nature. That's curiosity, wonder, collaboration, exploration, communal support. And that isn't going to be fundable in that same model. And it's not going to be as successful as the fear-based model and the tribalist model um, that Fox News is deploying. So I would much rather have folks on the progressive movement start thinking about what are the trusted and useful institutions that exist and how can news work better with them? So for instance, how can news organizations and libraries collaborate to be a trusted source of information. I've always dreamt that like some town would have like an Uber reference desk where if you're looking for information that already exists, a reference librarian would help you find it. And if you're looking for information that doesn't exist yet, then a journalist would help find those answers for you. And maybe for long-term questions, you could get academia involved, but that's too slow for most people's needs like day to day. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there to think about other civic institutions, kind of journalism not being like a separate arm that's fighting against another separate journalism arm, but that's integrated into mediation centers, dispute resolution centers, bridge building libraries, like I said, I think are phenomenal. We've done a lot of experiments with them. I guess that, that's what I would go toward rather than trying to build a replica of Fox News on the left. When you look at candidates, some of them are clearly playing hard with the polarization model, with the uh, eyeballs, raising money off of fear. They are kind of Fox News candidates in a certain sense of, of what you were just talking about. Do you see candidates who are doing it in a way that you admire that are, that are not playing that game so much? And maybe candidates or organizations, but people in the political process who you think are doing it right or more right? I feel like given the, the various demands on my attention these days, I have such a surface level understanding of a variety of different candidates and people that I can't give you more than one, because to me, the gold standard is Stacey Abrams <laughs> and the way that she operates in terms of grassroots, working with people, um, really using the good in people and their, their best characteristics and and the way that she shows up and she fights is with love and with integrity and with doggedness and persistence but not with nastiness to me the way that she holds herself and the way that she has built coalitions from the ground up that are much more strong and long standing and built on just relationships one by one at a time is the model I, I would love to see going forward but i know She's, she's a pretty special person, but I hope more people take pages out of her book. She's a special person and she's running a campaign that's going to be awfully tough against an incumbent governor in a state that's yep. barely... Awfully tough. Yeah. <laughs> barely so, democratic. Yeah. So we'll see. I'm definitely rooting for her. We've kind of 
skirted around this notion of polarization. And it's just highly characteristic of this time in our country. It's not the first time we've had this, but it's really, it's really pretty sharp between the two parties and people just leaping to to support their side regardless and particularly on the right chasing further and further away going to the fringe i just think that sort of diagnosis what is treatment i feel like two books that i've read recently that hold a lot of promise and a lot of tactical and practical advice um, are amanda ripley's book high conflict and monica guzman's book i never thought of it that way And they could be amazing guests as well, by the way. Um, But they both really talk about the psychology around polarization and the kind of different moves that people make and the traps that we get into when we start to create conflict that becomes about more than what the topic at hand is. And it becomes more about identity, becomes more about pride and fear and tribal notions. And so a lot of it has to do with really softening. And this is so hard. The inclination for many, myself included, because I have a dad who sends me chain letters online from different views that I don't agree with. And it makes my blood boil. And it makes me want to call up and scream at him. And I should know better in part because I've read these books and I know what I'm supposed to do, which is I'm not supposed to give up on him. I'm supposed to come at him with a with an, a genuine and respectful tone of curiosity rather than condemnation or being snarky or or snide. And that takes a lot of fortitude and that takes a lot of grace and time. And that's not something, again, that's like a sexy, quick answer to how do you fight this. But you know, you think about nonviolent movements over time and the leaders of those movements and how they won people over and had lasting and enduring power through softening. I think about Gandhi and the Dalai Lama and Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, all these people who have really modeled what it looks like to to base this off of love rather than off of hate or fear of winning. And I think that's the way forward. And it's really hard. And it takes people doing inner work, takes people being in community doing inner work, and it takes people modeling and and trying out different ways of, of doing things of not just coming at someone through logic, coming at them through humanity and through heart. All for humanity and heart and love and all these things. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> yeah. Let's just imagine for a second that our next president is the return of Donald Trump or it's Governor DeSantis or it's somebody who doesn't necessarily embody those characteristics very well. And they have a rubber stamp Republican Congress and they start to make moves against the media. They start to go down the road that has happened in Turkey and Hungary and is part of the authoritarian playbook. Is there something different that we should be doing if we are facing that kind of terrible backsliding? I go to two different places with with that question and, and something I do think about a lot, which is the what's the in case of emergency pull cord way of doing things? And then what's the long view? And I think I increasingly go to the long view, which is not necessarily satisfying for the moment, because it might come to pass that that does happen. And it might come to pass that things get far worse than they uh, do before they get better. But I have faith that in the long run, 
there will be a, a rebalancing, but I don't know, given the forces at play right now, that it can happen in a short period of time. I look at society and everything, basically every natural system that's made of, of natural things and people are of nature, um, as being in a constant cycle of integration and disintegration or of, you know, a dominant system coming into play and then an emergent system coming in uh, when the dominant system starts to fall. And I think we see signs all around us that the dominant systems of so many things, politics, healthcare, government, you know, media, all these things are, are in disintegration mode and they're crumbling. And it's terrifying because the consequences are life and death for many people. It's awful. At the same time, there are these emergent systems that are starting to be born. And there are people doing the seeds of experimentation, creating communities of practice, trying the things that are ultimately going to replace the broken systems that we have now. And I think it's going to take a couple lifetimes for those to play out. And that sucks because I think we only get one go at this. I don't believe in an afterlife or reincarnation necessarily. So I, I think trying to take the long view and not use the tools and tactics of your enemy is the only possible way to get through this in the long term. Jen, what are you working on now that you haven't talked about that uh, that you'd like to? I have a, a fantasy, a couple of fantasies that I'm always working on and trying to you know test out in the background to see if there's a funder or a collaborator or someone who wants to work on it. I really do want to do more tests with libraries and newsrooms working in collaboration, and I also want to do gosh, uh, have a dispute resolution center or a community mediation center attached to a newsroom and see what can happen when you start doing accountability reporting, not through the lens of humiliation as your tool of getting someone to change, but doing it through a lens of understanding and actually trying to see the system and the understory and the conflict that is you know, surrounding what might feel like a pretty cut and dried dispute. I, I want to experiment in having newsrooms really do some radically different things. Those are some of the things I'm lo looking at. And I'm also trying to figure out how do we get like DARPA level funding for journalism in this moment? How do we not do these piddly projects that are, you know, $100,000 grant here and there, which to me before used to be like, oh my God, I'm a millionaire, a hundred grand. And now I just think it's absolutely insufficient. I think every foundation needs to be supporting media on some level I think every philanthropist, high net worth individual needs to see that being part of their portfolio. And I think we need in the billions of dollars of investment. The good thing is we have a ton of experiments that are showing promise and working. It's just they're getting these stupid one-year grants for $800,000 to keep going versus saying, how do we scale this shit up because it is working? How do we get more people trained on this? How do we do that? So I'm, I'm also really interested in, I don't know, people in places who know how to leverage and find that kind of dollars to, to really plant these seeds much more broadly and water the crap out of them in the next few years when they're especially needed. So what's making you most hopeful? I think just, gosh, conversations with people who are trying new things and learning something. Honestly, like at the end of the day, when I, when I look at the abstraction of the news and what's happening in the world, it can be so hopeless. And then when I go have a conversation with an individual, I think, God, human beings are incredible. They're wonderful. They're the most inventive, imaginative, thoughtful, considerate, brilliant beings. How do we get them to see themselves that way and see each other that way more? So every time I have a conversation with, with a person that strikes that chord, I just feel like, God, there's, there's so much promise out there. 
Well, you're striking that chord, I think, for a lot of people probably right now who are listening. So appreciate oh, that. Thanks. Is there a question I failed to ask you that I should have? Oh, man. Um, how does Eve Perlman's brilliant work fit into this equation? <laughs> <laughs> you referenced my sister. I was thinking about her earlier in the interview when you were talking about not knowing in class when you were in elementary school or something what you wanted to be when you grow up because my sister, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but I think it's true. I think when she was asked what she wanted to be when she grew up, when she was very, very little, she said a doctor or a monster. <laughs> oh. Neither of which she really attained, but uh, I, which I, was amusing for us in the family for a while. My sister's been on the show. She does some stuff with dialogue journalism and she's also just very thoughtful generally about the problems and, and thinking about some of the solutions as you are. Do you have anything to say about her work? Yeah, I would just say Eve is one of these people that when I say there's people working on solutions who are showing promise, who are doing things differently and who are just brilliant and of the emergent solutions class of things. And her work at this company, she started called Spaceship Media doing dialogue journalism to me is so exciting because they bring people together physically, as well as, you know, online on Facebook groups and different, different formats, but they allow people to see one another's full humanity. And it becomes so much harder, just like we know, you know, in the comments section, if you're anonymous, it becomes way easier to be a real jerk and to become abusive and terrible. But the, the more information and the higher the bit rate, so to speak of the, of the interaction with someone, especially if they're in person and next to you, the harder it is to dehumanize them, to discard them and to not give them some degree of respect. And so I think the more we can get people together in rooms who disagree and allow one another to unpack and talk a little bit more about why they think something or what values are driving their decision-making, the better. Because I, I think that one of the biggest dangers we face right now in losing the the version of democracy we have right now is political violence, which we're already seeing, but I think it can become much more widespread. And political violence is only possible when people are dehumanized. And people are only dehumanized when they are out of touch with one another for so long and in a, such a different way and living inside their bubbles. So I think the work that she does in bringing people together in community is invaluable and part of that solution. Well, it's very kind of you to bring her up and I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> Anything else you want to say, Jen? Um, I'm just so grateful to be on this podcast and to have learned from so many of the folks that you've had on along the way. And I just want to say, um, gosh, everyone take a break when you need it. Cause this, this work is hard. Pass the baton when you need it. This is a, a marathon for generations. If I can be helpful in the work that we do, please reach out. Excellent. That was Jen Brandell. She's at Harkin.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.